Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the true meaning of this holiday, of this holy day. We thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, rose from the grave. Father, we wish that uh, we were all together uh, on Easter. We wish that we were all together to celebrate the resurrection, but we are not all together. We are separated for a time. Uh, this has not happened outside of your will or outside of your knowledge or your purposes. I don't know what those purposes are here, but I, I do trust you with them. Father, I do pray for your people wherever they are today. Uh, whenever they're hearing this, whenever they're listening to this, I pray that they'll be strengthened and encouraged, that their, their ears will be open to receive your word, that you'll bless them. And Father, I pray that you'll give me strength to do this well, as strange and as awkward as it is, that will recognize the value of who you are and what you mean to us. And Father, speak life even into something as as technologically distant from us as a, a video. Speak life into, into the receiving of the word uh, as I preach now. Uh, Father, bless this time. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do have your Bible, uh, please open it and turn to John chapter 20. Uh, this would be the message that I would typically preach in the uh, Easter service on Sunday morning. It's not Sunday morning, it's Saturday. I'm preaching this now, recording it now, uh, to an empty room. Uh, and it's very strange. Uh, this room has been empty for far too long. Not because there's any special significance in the room, but because... Uh, the significance of the room is the fact that it's where all of us gather together, and and we can't do that, and that is difficult. Uh, nevertheless, God's Word needs to be living and active among us, and I have a responsibility, you have a responsibility here, so we are going to do our best to continue on, and we're going to begin in John chapter 20 today. Uh, I'm going to read all the way through uh, verse 18 and then make some comments about it. So here we are, John chapter 20, verse 1. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, 
Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So that is uh, quite a tale. Uh, It's interesting when you read the Gospels, you hear this uh, from several different perspectives and there's a lot of good work that has been done to put these perspectives together. Some Gospels focus particularly in on uh, one of the disciples, some of the Gospels on the, the whole group of women. John's Gospel focuses in on Mary, Mary Magdalene. And that's who I want to talk about today, Mary Magdalene. Now, in the story of John chapter 20, it says that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. And then you have the qualifier, while it was still dark. Um, and I'm not sure if you've gone out uh, in the morning while it was still dark before. Uh, I have. There have been uh, several times in my life when uh, I haven't been able to sleep very well. Uh, I wish I could say that that didn't happen very often, but it, it does. Um, thoughts are disturbing. Uh, my mind won't settle down. Maybe something's bothering me. And uh, and I just don't sleep well. And eventually uh, you kind of give in to the restlessness and Sometimes I'll get out of bed and, and I'll go out into the living room. You know, I, I live in a house of seven people, five children, my wife and I. So it's odd to be in the house when other people are in the house and yet everything is quiet and silent. But that's how it is uh, early in the morning uh, when no one is up and no one is doing anything. The Bible doesn't say that Mary was restless, but it does say that on the day before this Sunday when she goes to the tomb, it was a Sabbath and that Uh, The women and the disciples had rested in observance of the Sabbath, but they had been waiting for the next day because in the haste after the crucifixion, Jesus' body had not been properly uh, prepared for burial. And so they had prepared spices and ointments and the kind of things that they would do to honor uh, the body of, of one whom they had loved. And she's waiting now for it to be legally and morally acceptable in observance of the law to go to the tomb and to handle the body and to do the work after the Sabbath. Uh, She'd been through quite an ordeal, and so she is first out in the morning. Now, the other Gospels tell us that she's not alone. Whether or not she's ahead of the other women, I don't know, but there are other women in the party, but John's Gospel specifically focuses in on Mary. So after a restless Sabbath, we read that uh, she gets there uh, in the dark, and she sees that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, again, in the other Gospels, we find that on the way to the tomb, the women had been asking themselves, we know that we're supposed to do this thing. We know that this is the right thing to do, but we're not sure how we're going to get into the tomb. They didn't have a a party of men, a party of strong men there to help them move the the stone that would seal the tomb and that would would, uh, seal in the body. And yet when they get there, they find that uh, the stone has already been rolled away. It says in verse 2 in John's gospel that she ran and came to Simon Peter. Now, uh, in the other gospels, we read that there is an appearance of the angels to the women, 
and that there are women who return to the disciples and their testimony is that the Lord is risen from the grave. And if you just read those gospels, you might assume that that is also Mary Magdalene's testimony upon returning to the disciples, that Jesus has risen from the grave. But in John's gospel, we get specifically Mary's response. And her response in verse 2 says, that when she comes to Simon Peter and the other disciple, uh, John, she tells them they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary doesn't believe at this point in time that there has been a resurrection. Matter of fact, she sees the, the, the stone rolled away from the tomb, and she has uh, fear and concern, uh, not joy and exuberance. And so she runs, and she runs to the disciples, and, and, and her assessment of the situation is that something terrible has happened. Um, it was not, unfortunately, uncommon for uh, people who had been recently buried, especially in, in the graves of the wealthy, and certainly a tomb was a place where a wealthy person might have been buried. We can read about how Jesus himself, who did not possess great earthly wealth, ended up in this tomb and the other Gospels, but this would have been a tomb of the wealthy. And, and as I was saying, it's not uncommon in the ancient world for the tombs of the wealthy to have been robbed or raided. Uh, they would be looking maybe for heirlooms or expensive things that those uh, who were rich enough to afford a tomb might have been buried with. Maybe Mary thought that someone had, had taken the body of Jesus, had robbed the tomb of Jesus. Uh, there was also a lot of paganism in the Roman world, and there were people who had all sorts of devious plots and plans when it came to robbing graves and tampering with bodies doing things with body parts. You can almost imagine, as Mary says here, that they've taken away the Lord. You can almost imagine the fear that she might have of, what have they done with the body of Jesus? I mean, this is a body whom they, she had seen crucify. She had seen them scourge him. She'd seen this body covered in blood and, and beaten beyond resemblance, a beard ripped out of its face, thorns shoved into its brow. Uh, unrecognizable, something that would have looked almost subhuman at the time of burial. And the thought that someone would go into the tomb, specifically this tomb of this man who had been treated this way, and take the body for some purpose that only God would know, uh, it, was, it was very disturbing to her. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a morbid recognition of what had been done to their faith. And make no mistake about it, they had followed Jesus because he, they you know, believed in him, believed in him as the Messiah. They, they'd given up their lives for him. They, they'd, they'd literally given up the time of their lives over the course of a three-year ministry to follow him. And over this short Passover holiday, everything that they had anticipated in the coming of Jesus had come crashing down. It's more than a church splitting apart or a cult leader being revealed for the charlatan that he is. It's more than when a coach lets down a team. It's even worse than when a, a father or a mother uh, leaves a family or abandons their children. Because in Jesus, they had found something more meaningful than a mere human relationship could depict. In Jesus, they had found 
a Savior, a Lord. You know, they had followed Jesus for three years and they had seen nothing in three years to impugn his character. Can you say that about anybody in your life? I'm sure that you can't, not if you're being honest. Those of us who had the very best parents can find something to impugn their character, something to compromise their integrity. You know, as I record this, my daughter's sitting over here. She's helping me. Uh, you know, I'm ashamed to think of the things that that my daughter has heard come out of my mouth, the things that she's seen me do, the way she's seen me respond. You know, if you spend enough time living close to somebody, whether it's a boss at work or, like I said, a coach on a team, a parent, a, a husband, a wife, you will see the worst sides of them. It's, it's just, it's unavoidable, really. There are no perfect people except, except Jesus. And that, I think, is part of what captivated the disciples and what captivated Mary and the others who followed Jesus so much is there was nothing to impugn his character. There was nothing to compromise his integrity. And, and being in this relationship with this sinless Son of God who, who not only was sinless but was also powerful and did things that they couldn't explain, Mary had seen those things in her own life. Jesus had already saved Mary in her lifetime. In Luke chapter 8, the first two verses tell us that when Jesus encounters Mary Magdalene, she was demon-possessed. I, I don't know what that means. I mean, I know spiritually what it means. it means. It means spiritual forces of darkness in this world have found a dwelling place inside of you. But practically, what did that mean? I don't know. It said she was also afflicted with infirmities. It says those as two different things in the first two verses of Luke. I don't know what the infirmities were. But that means she knew what it was to be physically oppressed. Sickness, infirmary, infirmity. And she knew what it was to be spiritually oppressed. Uh, seemingly out of control of conduct and character and who she was and her thoughts. And Jesus had saved her from all of that. Just as he'd saved Peter from a life of mindless fishing. Just as he'd saved so many of the the disciples who followed him in the most practical way. And in this short Passover time, all of this had come crashing down. And to think that someone would just pile on to that by taking his body. So she runs and she tells Peter, she runs and she tells John, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Well, Peter goes out right away uh, he hears the testimony of the other women who saw the angels. Whether or not Mary actually saw the physical appearance of angels or not, I don't know. But he hears the testimony of the other women too. And it says that when they tell him that Jesus has risen from the grave, that he doesn't believe that, that, that that's a, a fairy tale for him, that that's, he doesn't believe their, their, their tales, their, their stories. I mean, would you? Women go out early in the morning to put some spices on the body of a dead man, and they come back with this <laughs> this tale that he's risen from the grave. Would you believe that? I don't think so. So Peter rushes out. Uh, he gets to the tomb. He stops. Uh, or John gets there first. He stops. John's looking in. Peter comes. He goes straight inside. Uh, they have their own experience here, and Mary follows them. And in verse 11, the story 
returns to Mary. It says, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Mary still doesn't believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. She's the first to arrive in the morning. She's the first to fear and doubt. And here she's the last to leave the tomb. She's just outside in the garden. You ever be outside? You ever been outside in a garden in the morning? Yeah, after the dawn, quiet, cool. She's there by herself. And it says she is crying. Everything has fallen apart. While she's crying, verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Verse 14, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. I, I don't know why. There's been all sorts of speculation why she did not know that it was Jesus. Uh, maybe it was the way that the light was at his back from the tomb. She's in, she's in the tomb perhaps or she's at the entrance of the tomb. I don't know. Maybe Jesus just simply spiritually blinded her eyes. She sees a figure, and the last thought in her brain is that it's Jesus. Why would she think it's Jesus? And so she sees the figure of a man, and she's weeping, and she's crying. And this man says, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus says to her, Mary, by name. When he says Mary, something happens. She recognizes Jesus' voice. She knows the voice. She knows the voice saying the name. I've been married for a long time now. Uh, when my wife says my name, it's unique. There's nothing like it. Um, I have a father. When my father says my name, I know that voice. I know my name in his mouth when he says it. When my mother says my name, when my brother says my name, when my children call my name, there are voices that I recognize when they call to me instantaneously. There's something entirely unique about it. So unique that, that I rarely ever make a mistake when I turn around with the expectation of who it is. She turned and she said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher, teacher. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Now, some people have, have said, well, that must mean that, that Jesus shouldn't be touched because there was some kind of transformation happening and it would have interrupted the process. I don't, I don't see that. That's not anywhere in the text. He's she's trying to grab on and hold him. And he's saying, don't cling to me. I haven't ascended to my father yet. I, in other words, I haven't left yet. I'm not, I'm not leaving yet. I'm not going anywhere. Because what would you do if there was someone you loved and you cared about and you watched them bleed and die and now they're in front of you in the flesh? What would you do? I mean, you would grab onto them, right? 
and you would hold that person and you wouldn't want to let that person go and you would keep that person close. When I was a freshman in uh, high school, uh, one of my friend's father died and they had the funeral service right here in, in the sanctuary. And the body was at the back. Uh, I was going to go anyway because it was one of my friend's uh, father who had died. And uh, my dad asked me if I'd help with the sound because he didn't have anyone to do it. And so I was up there in the sound booth at the back of the of the sanctuary. And, and uh, you know, at the end of the funeral service, uh, the family's walking out. And this is, you know, he died unexpectedly, very sudden. And his mother stopped at the, the casket, which was at the back, right at the end of this row. And I remember she was just hugging the body and crying and saying the person's name and, and some combination of the words, no, 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 come back, come back, come back. If you lose someone who you love, I mean, who you truly love, you would do anything to have that person back. You would do anything. You, you might even be willing to give your own life to have that person back. And here, I don't know how to describe it because it's never happened to me. I've never seen it in real life. But here, Jesus is back and Mary is clinging and holding and she doesn't want to let go. And he tells her, I'm not going anywhere, but go to my brethren. Say to them that I will be ascending to my father and your father, my God. And so she... She goes and she tells the disciples that she's seen the Lord. Now, that's the story. That's the story. Um, we talk about Mary. We know that, that Jesus had already saved her in this lifetime. She, he had already saved her from sickness. He had already saved her from demon oppression. And now uh, he had saved her eternally. And she was just coming to the, the knowledge and the understanding of that. I want to read a parable to you from Jesus from Luke chapter 7. Uh, so this is Luke chapter 7. Incidentally, this is the last parable that we have before Jesus uh, introduces us to Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8. What happens is Jesus is at the house of a wealthy guy. Uh, he was having a, you know, kind of a feast for the Lord. He doesn't seem to be all that sensitive to the teaching of Jesus. His name is Simon. And uh, during the middle of the feast, something really absurd happens. Uh, nothing quite like this has ever happened to me before. Uh, and I think I'd be uh, thinking it was pretty awkward if it did, as it seems to be the, the general response of everybody at the feast. It says, while Jesus is at the table in this Pharisee's house, in Simon's house, uh, there was a woman who came uh, who, who saw that it was Jesus, and she, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and she stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet. See the same kind of picture of clinging to him. And she anointed them with fragrant oil, put this oil, this expensive oil, on his feet. She's wiping them, her, his feet with her hair, and she's crying and kissing. And the Pharisee sees this. I mean, this is just a spectacle. This is a display. Imagine if someone, you know, ran in when, in the middle of a dinner that you were having with somebody and they just start doing this way over the top expression of crying and affection. I mean, we, we, we don't behave this affectionately to people who we care about, you know, every day in our life. I mean, the, 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 the using our hair, and of course I couldn't do that, but, but, but using your hair to clean somebody's feet off with your own tears 
And it's just so over the top. The Pharisee who'd invited Jesus speaks these, he says in verse 39, this man, Jesus, if he were a prophet, would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, I don't know what kind of sin. I mean, for that kind of a public judgment, she must have been well known for whatever kind of sin that she did. Um, a lot of people have taken all kinds of guesses about what it may have been, whether it was prostitution or whether it was whether it was uh, some kind of blasphemy, whether it was some kind of theft. I, I have no idea, but it is known who she is and this over-the-top display of affection. Verse 40, here's the parable. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing for which to repay, he freely forgave them both. So tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, I would ask you this morning, do you know how unworthy you are of Jesus. Do you know how unworthy you are of the Lord Jesus? God in flesh who knew no sin, who died on the cross for you, Do you feel the emotion of the woman? Emotions are powerful things. Feelings are powerful things. Love is demonstrated in these acts of affection here, like we see here in, in John's Gospel, where Mary is just weeping because she loves the Lord, and then she won't let him go. That kind of love for Jesus can't be manufactured. You know, it's Easter Sunday, and I... I've always struggled with Easter because I know there's a, a large number of people who on Easter, they want to be filled with joy and they want to be filled like it's a like it's a Super Bowl parade or something like that. I just have never felt that way at Easter. When when Easter comes around, I am happy, I am at peace, I am I have a real joy, but I have never just this exuberant over the top. I have a smile on my face, but the smile is because I know that the Lord has risen and I know that he has saved me from my sin. But the somberness of it is what it cost him and the fact that I know I don't deserve it. This guy in this parable, who Jesus is speaking this parable to, he doesn't, he doesn't think that he's all that undeserving of Jesus. Two double negatives there. He, 
he doesn't see all that much separation between himself and the Lord. He, he may not be exactly worthy of Jesus if he is in fact the Messiah, but it's not like he's far off. He doesn't see himself as that bad of a person. This woman is a known sinner, whatever classification that means. There are other people like this in the Bible. You know, Paul is the persecutor. He is the Pharisee of Pharisees. And then Jesus brings him to his knees on the road to Damascus. And he shows him how evil it is for him to be doing what he's doing, attacking the Lord. He shows him the ridiculousness of his own self-righteousness, his own pharisaical self-righteousness, that he thinks that he can be good enough to deserve the honor and the righteous standing of a, of a servant of God in heaven. He thinks that he can somehow do that, and he doesn't realize that, that, it, that his, his sins are, are, are all over him, that he's entirely unworthy of this. And Paul, on the other side of this humbling, the other side of this experience, this recognition that he does not deserve the Lord in 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's a broken man. That's a man who knows who he is. Who knows what he deserves and what he doesn't deserve. He deserves hell. He deserves judgment. He deserves a penalty for his sin. And he gets Jesus. He gets forgiveness. He gets eternal life. He gets a right standing with the Lord. He gets now no condemnation in this life and no wrath upon him. This is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Pharisees. No. Righteous people. No. Religious people who think that they can somehow wipe out all of the debt in their ledger with God by doing good and righteous things. Jesus came to save those people. Really hard-working righteous people. No. Jesus Christ came in the world to save Mary Magdalene's and pharisaical persecutors like Paul. Thomas, the lone doubting holdout in John chapter 20. Uh, he, you know, doubt is, is how the disciples greet this announcement of the risen Lord. Doubt is how the disciples receive this news. And, and even after Jesus appears to the other disciples and they tell Thomas about it, the other disciples say, we have seen the Lord in John chapter 20. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And here's how Jesus broke Thomas. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in their midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it in my side. And I love this. Simple instruction. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, Broken Thomas, broken Thomas, answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Peter, you know Peter, the 
sword-wielding disciple with apparently the bad aim. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they come to arrest Jesus. And Peter takes a sword, and he's trying to defend Jesus because, of course, the Son of God needs defending. You know, the, the Peter who swore that I'll never leave you, I'll go with you to the end, and I'll die. This is the Peter who runs away like a coward at the questioning of little girls after Jesus is arrested. Peter, broken. Peter, humbled. Here he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving for us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls." This is the Peter who thought that he had to get a sword and defend Jesus telling people, no, you can suffer. Do you know how unworthy you are of being saved? You cannot celebrate Easter unless you realize the depravity of your sin. You just can't. Do you know how unworthy you are of this calling? That's what it is, a calling. Jesus, when he was standing before Pilate in John 18, was being questioned, and Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? It says, Jesus answered, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, verse 35 of John 18, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, your own nation, and the chief priest had delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to this truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, all of the disciples, the women, they respond. Mary, she responds in doubt when she hears about a resurrected Lord. What causes the change in her condition? In Mary's sense, in the disciples' sense, they very literally hear the voice of Jesus. They very literally hear. He will not leave them in doubt. He appears to them. He speaks to them. And here he tells Pilate that this is what's going to happen. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And it's Jesus' voice, it's this Mary in, in John's gospel that turns her around and all of a sudden all of her doubt and all of her disbelief comes to belief. And that's not unique to her. I can tell you the reason why I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and a risen Savior is because I have heard the call of Jesus in my life. He's not some distant figure out there. 
I have never heard an audible voice in my ears, but I have heard the call of Jesus to the very depths of who I am in my soul. He knows my sin. He knows my condition. And yet through his word, he speaks to me. Through the spirit of God inside of me, I know that he died for me. I know that he loves me. I know that he cares for me. I know that he is with me. I know that he saved me. I know that he loves me and will bring me into eternal life. There are people all around the world who spend all kinds of time on Easter trying to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't have a defense for the resurrection of Jesus Christ except what the Bible says is what I believe. The Bible tells us that people doubted and the Bible tells us that they believed. This man, Jesus, who rose from the grave went from 120 followers in an upper room just 50 days later to... How many followers in the world today? Three point some billion? He didn't do it at the head of an army like Muhammad. He didn't do it with some great movement. He didn't do it with a bunch of fanciful uh, uh, signs and shows. He was dead when this movement exploded. Dead in, in, in terms of the world's perspective. He wasn't alive in the world's mind. There was, no, there was no celebrating of him. He was alive only in the faith of his followers. He was alive only in heaven at the right hand of God. He wasn't on the earth doing anything. He was a dead Messiah, and yet the explosive growth of what the power of God did and the disciples and the apostles bearing witness to him. Now, 2,000 years later, this carpenter who was crucified and who rose from the grave, who was testified by his own disciples of the power of that resurrection 2,000 years later, not only has that simply caught on a little bit, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached throughout the world. But that's not why I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus because I've heard the call of Jesus in my life. In a very real way, I know that he has spoken my name. I've sat in chairs, I've sat in pews, and I felt the weight of my sin as the gospel was preached, and I knew, like Mary knew, like the woman knew in Luke, like Peter would find out when he was humbled, like Paul knew on the road to Damascus, like Thomas knew when he stood before the Lord with the wounds in his hand and his side, I knew I am not worthy of forgiveness. I am not faithful. I don't deserve this. And yet here is a Savior who has suffered and died for me anyway. This is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I know them and they follow me. That's my testimony. Now, someone say, this isn't, you know, the happy, cheery message that I'm used to on Easter. It's happy to me. Luke chapter 24. Why, why did Jesus rise from the grave? You know, there are all kinds of messages being preached all over the world on Easter, you know, all kinds of messages, some good, some bad. What message does Jesus want to be preached? You ever ask yourself that question? What message does Jesus want to be preached? Why did he rise from the grave and what are we supposed to do with this? Are we supposed to do this just to be happy once a year or just to feel good about ourselves and to you know, feel the weight of this, our sin lifted off of our shoulders and to be reminded of how great everything is? Well, look, I, I'm not at odds with, with things being great for the believer, but, but 
If only the Bible told us why Jesus did this. Luke chapter 24. Then Jesus, on the other side of the resurrection, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now that's Luke chapter 24, verses 44, 45. Jesus tells his disciples, this is why I had to die on a cross. This is why I had to rise from the grave. And, and he, he shows them from the scripture this comprehensive message. And then he said to them, verse 46, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and the third day, and that repentance and the remissions of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Now, because of what was written in the scriptures, Jesus came and died on the cross and rose from the grave. And it was written, and he rose. So verse 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. What message does Jesus want you to hear at this time of year? When you think about the Passover Lamb of God, when you think about the covenant of Jesus Christ, that no longer would the sacrifice of lambs and oxen and doves be sufficient or, or be an acceptable sacrifice to God for sin. No longer would we go to priests and intermediaries, men to go to God on our behalf. When you think about the Lamb of God who died on a cross to take away your sin, to meet the, the penalty of sin justly as a substitute, because there is no other righteous substitute. There's only one sinless man who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. If you and I were to go die on the cross for somebody, we couldn't pay for anyone else's sin. That would just be us getting what we deserve. Death is what we deserve. We're sinners. We're under the condemnation of death. Jesus alone did not deserve death. Jesus alone is qualified to pay the price of sin. If I tried, I'd just be getting what I deserved. When you think of that, when you think of Jesus' work at the cross, and when you think of Jesus' resurrection on the third day, what message does he want you to take away? Does he want you to take away the message, just be happy? Does he want you to take away the message, everything in this world's going to be fine? Does he want you to take away the message? See, it doesn't matter what you do. I love you anyway. Verse 47 of Luke 24. I did all of this so that the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, in Jesus' name, in Christ's, in the Messiah's name. Repentance. Father, I am a sinner. What I'm doing, what I've done, who I am, who I'll be, is not worthy of you. I want to turn away from my sin, and I'm not capable of that on my own strength. 
I don't know how to be better than what I am. I know what the scriptures say. I know there are rules I'm not supposed to break, but I don't know how to change who I am. I come to you with a broken heart. I come to you with a repentant spirit, and I ask you to change my life. That's what he did for Mary, a woman who was demon-oppressed and possessed with infirmities. He changed her life. He made repentance possible. Repentance should be preached and the remission of sins. Lord, I know that you alone can take away my sin. I know that you alone have died on the cross and paid the price for it, and you alone can take it away. Let me tell you, Christian, that is a message that never gets old. That is a message that is never too somber for Easter. That is a message that is never too hopeless to the world or, 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 or too pie-in-the-sky idealistic for the world. It's a simple message. We are sinners. We don't deserve a Savior, and God has provided one anyway. And all you need to do is come to Him in repentance and faith that He can remove your sin that He's risen from the grave to conquer death and to give you eternal life. And if you do that, the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't have any other message for Easter. This is Old Testament and New Testament. This is what I've got. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Hear the voice of God this morning. Come now, let us reason together. as the voice of your God. Speaking to creation, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Jesus is God's reasoning with you. Jesus is God's covenant with you. Come now, says the Lord, let us reason together. Let us reason together, see the cross. Let us reason together, see the tomb. Come now, let us reason together. There is Jesus. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's the voice of God. Isaiah 118. If you have not received Jesus Christ, what are you doing? <laughs> you are not worthy of this. If you have not embraced the Lord, hear the call of your name in your heart today to be saved. Father, I don't know who is going to listen to this. This is in some ways the most depressing kind of message I ever preached. There is no energy in this room other than the Spirit of God in my heart. And I'm a poor vessel of communication. I, I'm just not very good. There's nobody here. This is an empty room. This is a message preached in faith alone. Father, perhaps somebody will hear this. Perhaps someone for the first time will have these things click together. They'll recognize their unworthiness. They'll recognize the great gift of your Son that you've given them. 
They'll see the freedom in not having to live some life of good deeds to make up for all the evil things they've done. Maybe they'll even see the hopelessness of even trying that. Maybe, Father, some Christian who's fallen away, some some believer who's forgotten the blessing that it is to know your son Jesus, maybe they'll hear this. Maybe things will turn around for them. Or maybe there's just a bunch of quarantined people who are members of this church who need to know that their pastor is still preaching the gospel, that the Word of God is living and active. And no matter what threatens us, the power of your Spirit to work in our lives will never cease. I thank you for your Son, Jesus. I thank you for His redeeming work. It's in His name I pray. Amen.